All right, John 17, verse 2. 17, verse 2. My translation this morning reads this way. Just as He gave Him authority over all flesh, so that all whom He has given to Him, He may give to them eternal life. Maybe I'll do more with it next week, but do note, (laughs) all can mean all, or it can mean all. So all flesh, that encompasses the whole world, but all to whom the Father has given to Him is not every individual in the world. So all of those the Father gave versus all flesh making up the entire world. If I put those two together, there's obviously a distinction between every human soul on the planet and those the Father has given to the Son. Maybe more with that next week. All right. This sermon that I'm preaching this morning finds its roots in a sermon preached by none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Sunday morning, August the 24th, 1864. I took his idea and I flat out stole it. He's dead and he can't even complain. Crafted it, rewrote it, but I do want to acknowledge that it is not the design and layout is not original to me. All right, so at the heart of the exposition of John 17, 2 this morning, we might as well just say it as it is. It brings us to the debate over divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It is here in our text. This debate tends to move into a discussion about limited atonement and unlimited atonement. That's the issue. Redemption, the saving of those the Father's given, all this is pointing to a cross event. Limited atonement, I'd rather call it special or specific atonement, or I'd rather call it actual atonement. Unlimited atonement, I would rather call it possible atonement or potential atonement. When we boil this controversy down, we must embrace an atonement that actually saves the elect of God, or we have to embrace an atonement that makes salvation possible for those who might be willing to believe. The first is an atonement that is accomplished for God through Christ by the Spirit to the praise of His glorious grace. The second is an atonement that is accomplished by the will of man choosing to believe what God has offered to all. The first is actual and the second is possible. The first depends upon God and the second depends upon man. Now, I don't think this is new for you. It could be new to some of you. This is the debate that's been raging, I suppose, ever since the Bible's been written. And so a lot of it comes up in 17.2, and you could read till you die what's been written upon this verse. Now, the manner of the message this morning is to establish a pattern. It's not typically how I write a sermon, but we're going to establish a pattern of how God works in creation, how God works 
in providence, how God works in miracles, and how God works in the gospel. I'm going to take that pattern and then apply it systematically to this verse. How does God work in creation? How does He work in providence? How does He work in miracles? And how does He work in the gospel itself? Now, this pattern, the way we're going to discover that God works, seems to be consistent with the warp and the woof of Scripture and its pattern concerning the general design of God and the specific application of God's design. In other words, God works in such a generous way that many are affected by what He does. But in that effect of, say, globally, there are specific applications of that work. Just work with me. We'll get there if it don't make sense. Hopefully it will before we're done. In other words, when all is said and done, it is the Son, S-O-N, Christ Jesus, who possesses authority over all flesh. His authority affects the entire globe. But specifically, his authority is applied to a specific group, and that group is made up of those the Father has given to him. We do the same, do we not? You make a birthday cake. Everybody that comes to the party eats the cake, but it was designed for the person whose birthday it was, right? You come to a wedding. Everybody gathers at the wedding. All these people come, and there's an effect that everybody's here, but everybody came for the bride, right? So there's these things that we do like that that have a general effect but have a specific application. It's not foreign to us, even in our day-to-day affairs. I want to show you that from God in creation, providence, miracles, and the gospel. God's general works, this is point number one, God's general works in creation with specific applications to certain objects. Now, you may not be convinced as we begin, but these will progressively get more clear as we work through. These are general, and they move into more specific areas. Let's start with God's care of plants. God's care of plants. you got a seed, you got a cell, you got a stem, and you got a leaf. But we know and understand that really the only purpose of the plant is to make the seed. That's all that we care about. Now, you're not farmers, and maybe you don't care. But I I know this, the farmer only cares about the seed. You plant corn, you plant it in rows. It sprouts and it comes up. You care, you water, you cultivate, you get rid of bugs, you do everything necessary. When you plant the seed, you chase all the hogs off or they don't eat the seed. Why? You do all of that because you care about one thing. You want the seed. And so you do all this care throughout all of this process, and I know what happens. When it comes time to get the seed, we get a thing called a combine, and we drive through the rows of the field, and that combine sucks the corn right off the stalk, and it butchers it through there, and all the corn ends up in the hopper. You dump the hopper over here, and you take it to the truck. The truck takes it to the grain silo. The grain silo takes it to the place to sell, and the farmer gets money. That's the way it works. What happens to the stalk? 
It gets cut down. What happens after they're all cut down? Then they come and they just burn the field, and it's all burned up and gone. Why? But the farmer gave care to all the process, but specifically, he only cared about the seed. God cares for all the plants. They leave and they bud and all these things happen. But winter comes and the leaf falls off and it shrivels up and nobody remembers the leaf. And God cared for it all that time, but all he wanted out of it was the seed. It's the seed that matters. God cares. God knows. God does this general good for the whole plant for the specific reason of the seed. We live in a world where God cares for all men, but it is his elect seed that is very dear to his heart. The non-believer dries up, fades away, falls into a Christless eternity, and is remembered no more. But the elect are preserved unto eternity. God gives rain, does he not? Something we desperately need right now because we're in a severe drought. We pray for rain, and in due time, God will send rain. So, when God does send rain, you'll find this interesting, but God causes it to rain on the Gulf of Mexico. Now, why on earth do you need rain in the Gulf of Mexico? I mean, what's the, it, the, the, the Gulf of Mexico benefits, but there's really no good reason to have it. It's already full of water. But specifically, that rain that falls on the Gulf of Mexico would move into Briar, and it would rain on your garden and have specific application to your garden. That's the specific application of a general good that happens in the whole world. God gives us air to breathe. Oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, abundantly supplied globally. You ever thought about this, though? Do you know there is air available in the polar regions of the world where there's no animal or human life? There's air there. There's just nobody to breathe it. Nobody's prospering from it, if you will. Do you know there's air in the remotest parts of the Sahara Desert where even the buzzard refuses to fly? But yet it's there, it's generally everywhere, but it's only benefited specifically by those who are there to breathe it. We're benefiting from it, even though some is there, but no one is benefiting from it. Why is this? Why is it that God would bountifully supply, but the application is limited to specific objects? But what about flowers? Why are there flowers in the world? Why, why do we have flowers? You understand there's millions of flowers. Could we not deduce that God's so generous and so good that God made flowers that we might behold them and behold the mystery and the providence of God in His beauty in forming flowers? That they would have a fragrance to them that would cause us to sniff them. If you've ever given roses to your bride, and the first thing she does is she sniffs them, and it gives pleasure to her to smell this new rose. But do you understand there are millions of flowers that are never sniffed? There are millions of flowers that are never even seen. They're generally across the whole world, but specifically, there's only few or some that enjoy their design. God creates many wonders, does he not? 
Didn't you just love watching the sunrise this morning? I realize I just lost 80% of you because you're laying in your bed sleeping. But it still rose for the whole world to see. And I stood out here, right out there on the road, sat on that little white pipe talking on the phone, and I watched the sun come up. It was there for everybody to see. But I got to receive the joy of watching my God make it come up. Happens. Sun glistening on an ice formation out somewhere in a cavern somewhere that none of us have ever seen. A dew-covered valley that no one has the opportunity to enjoy. There was a fawn born from a deer that took its first steps, and no one even saw it, but yet it was there, God's general goodness and the joy of seeing that new life stand up on its feet. is only beheld by the one that happens to be there at the time when it happens. What about those birds singing this morning in the trees? And I'm on the phone with Mike Dew. Every time I'm on the phone, he's on the front porch, and I hear the birds singing. Birds singing all over the globe. But there's a few people here and there on front porches and back porches and taking a walk down the road that get to hear those notes, and they say, wow, what a God. Birds are singing everywhere. But only certain people are enjoying the benefits of the melody. A million other mysteries that are not beheld by the masses. God does this for what reason? God's general works of creation, they display His glory whether man is there to enjoy it or not. Whether anyone sees it, if a tree falls to the north or whether it falls to the south. God does all of these things for His own glory, even if no one else sees. But in His general revelation, He has specific application to those He wants to do something with. However, God does use the unseen things by causing some to see. Is that all that difficult for you this morning? That God, of His own free will, at His own given time, according to His own self, can choose to show something to you that you've never seen before. And He does not have to show you what He shows you. He doesn't have to show it to anybody else. That today, He can show you something and keep everybody else blind. There's only two guys on the Emmaus Road, and they get to see because their eyes are open when there's thousands that don't even have the conversation of that chapter. Is he not free to do that? Can he not do what he jolly well pleases? How can we find fault with that? He is God. Remember, God's Son, the Lord Jesus, has been given authority over all flesh, over all flesh, so that to all whom the Father has given him, He may give eternal life. Point number two is the same as point number one, only now providence. Providence, general providence over everything, specific application to certain objects. Think about it this way. God's providence over the universe. I hope that you would not argue or quibble with me this morning over this point, but it is God's providence that causes all the planets to orbit. If it was not for the providence of God, it would all fall apart. It's God's providence that controls the weather. If it rains, God sent it. If we're in a drought, God's withheld the rain. 
If the wind blows, it's because it came out of the storehouse of God. God's providence reigns over all of these things. He guides the rivers, he constrains the oceans, and he moves the heart of all kings. He's sovereignly, providentially governing everything. And as Calvin would be apt to say, there's not one maverick molecule on the face of the globe. It is God's providence at work in his people. You remember the text? Everybody knows it. You probably memorized it at some point in your life. In all this providence, there's something we know. We know that for those who love God, 8 billion people, But for those who love God, all things work together for good. For who? That group that loves God. For those who are called according to His purpose. This verse, in the general workings of God, is applied specifically to a group of those who are called. The verse doesn't apply to unbelievers. It doesn't work that way. It's only for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God's providence, it should not be a problem for you, especially if you're a Christian, it should not be a problem. You should not be alarmed that God controls all things. Actually, you should be pretty happy about that. That by his providence, and his providence works especially in the lives of believers. That shouldn't make us mad or upset us that the God of the universe who spoke everything into being out of nothing providentially works specifically in his own children. That shouldn't blow our minds as we're apt to say. I assure you as an earthly father that I work differently for my own children than I do for your children. I love my children more than you than your children. I do. I'm not ashamed to say that. My children mean more to me than your children to me. It just doesn't that's the way it works. Why would we be shocked that God sets his affection specifically on his own children? It should be common logic, everyday obvious. You should not be shocked to know that the atoning work of Calvary has a general effect of good on the whole world, but specifically to those whom God has given him. God's providence in the life of Jonah. What's going on in this minor prophet? You know the story. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach the gospel in Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh. He catches a boat. He goes down to Tarshish. He gets his boat, and he's going off the opposite direction. You do understand that on that sea, that day, when this violent storm comes, you do understand it affects more than the boat Jonah's in. You do understand that every boat on the water that day is affected by a storm. All of God's providence is moving the whole ocean. There's other sailors, there's other captains, and there's other people afraid of what's going to happen. But that whole event has a specific application. I want Jonah out of the boat. So they take the general work of God on this sea that day, and they take this guy, and they throw him overboard, and it calms down. The specific design of God's providence has been accomplished. What about the birth of Christ? Ever pondered the birth of Christ? Now, what has to happen here? There's some things that have to line up, do they not? Where's Christ going to be born? Well, in Bethlehem. Yeah, but Mary's not there. How are you going to get Mary to Bethlehem? 
How's that going to work? You can't post it on Facebook. You can't send her a Twitter message. You can't call her on your cell phone. So what are we going to do? The providence of God is going to say that everybody that has birth must line up with their pedigree and go and do the census and to be at this place to sign these books. And lo and behold, thousands and thousands go in to check in with their pedigree. All of that is done for the specific application to one, Mary that she would be there at that time to give birth in that location in order that all the scriptures that prophesied the birth of Christ would be fulfilled. Everybody's affected, but it was for the design of one woman for the birth of one child that would change the world forever. You should know this. God's providence. You think about it in Jonah. You think about it with the birth of Christ. You think about it in our prayers. You're out there, Travis is hanging some sheetrock, somebody's mowing their grass out in the yard, it's 197 degrees, it's humid, and there's not a breath of air to be found anywhere. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, Jordan's fighting the fire, got all this suit on, it's 190 degrees, right? And you say, oh Lord, (laughs) would you please send a breeze? Anybody ever? Give me some air. You Surely you don't think that the breeze is just going to blow on you. <laughs> There's going to be, if the breeze comes, it'll affect everybody in the location, although it was specifically designed to answer your prayer. You pray for rain to hit your property. <laughs> thunder, I, I hear it, I hear it's thunder. There's a puddle of water back here behind the church, and there's one in Azel, and not a drop in my yard. I, I don't understand. I pray, Lord, let the rain hit my property. But I don't believe that when it comes, it's only going to rain on that half acre of land where I live. God's rain would cover a large, vast area to answer my prayer specifically. You pray for the man and woman of a certain house, a neighbor, co-worker, someone. You pray that God would bless that man. You pray that God would bless that woman. Surely you don't think that if God blesses a husband, it won't affect the wife and kids. And if God blesses the wife, it won't affect the husband and the kids. God blesses the kids, it won't affect the parents. You know that if God specifically answers your prayer for this individual, it's going to have an effect upon the whole home. Answers to your prayers have general ramifications and specific applications in accordance to the providence of God. Remember, God's Son the Lord Jesus, has been given all authority over all flesh so that all whom he has given to him, that he may give eternal life to them. Number three, God's miraculous works have the same pattern. Let me give you some you may not be readily thinking about this morning. How about the sun and the moon standing still. It's a miracle, is it not? We don't see that happen. It's kind of a one-time thing. Joshua 10, it's worded this way. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave uh, the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Hajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. 
Here's he praying in this battle, and the sun stops moving, the moon stops moving, the day is lengthened to give them time to defeat their enemies. The miracle affected everyone, but the specific application was for Joshua in the battle with the Canaanites. Everyone that day, though, listen, everybody got a longer day. Everybody did. And think about that. There's some poor guy laying bricks on a house somewhere, and they told him, look, you got to have this done by the end of the day. And he's looking at the sun, he's looking at the bricks, he's looking at the house, he's like, I'm not going to make it. And then the sun stopped moving that day. He's like, not sure what's going on here, but I'm going to keep working. And he finished his project, and he don't even know why the sun stopped. But he got to finish the project because God did a work of a miracle in the life of Joshua in the battle with the Canaanites. It's a general work going on, and people were blessed. But specifically, Joshua knew why. The nation of Israel, they knew why. General effect on the world, specific to Joshua's prayer. Let me give you another one. How about Sennacherib? How about Sennacherib, an attack on Jerusalem? Here comes Sennacherib. He's he's wiped out all these other nations. Let's take on Jerusalem. Remember what Hezekiah did, 2 Kings 19. He says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before God. Here's the situation, God. We're about to die. I need some help. He prayed, 1919, he prayed, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth save us, that everybody on the globe may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Well, God answered, did he not? I'll defend this city. I'll save it. I'll defend this city. I'll save this city. And I'll do it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, here's you a battle, that night, one angel wipes out a whole military. 185,000 people are dead the next morning. Obviously, it's an answer to prayer, specifically to Hezekiah's prayer, to the city of Jerusalem, to the nation of Israel. But you know what? There's another guy. His name is Moradach Baladin. He's with the Babylonians. <laughs> Dude, the Assyrians have been defeated. Do you, think, do you not think that he benefited from that? He even wrote a letter and sent it to Hezekiah giving him thanks for what had happened. So there's a general effect even to Babylon, but specifically applied to Hezekiah's prayer and to the nation of Israel. Miracles, general effect, specific application. Let me give you another one. How about another issue on the sea? Think about the sea in the New Testament. And you got these disciples, and they're in a boat, and their captain is down in the bottom of the boat, sleeping. Now, the text says in Mark that there were many other boats on the sea. So we know it's not alone. Here comes this violent wind, stirs it up. All the disciples are losing their minds. We're going to die. We're going to perish. We're going to drown. Jesus, wake up. Don't you care about me? Right? You know the story, right? He gets up and he says, peace be still. 
Here's some guys over here throwing cargo out of the boat, hanging on to something, going, I'm going to die. And then there's no wind and everything's calm. What's going on? He don't even know, but he's happy. I'm thankful I didn't drown. I didn't lose my whole fishing boat. And I got some people on board and we're all alive. I don't know what has happened here, but that was really cool. But the design of the storm and the calming of the storm was for the faith of the disciples. That they may understand, I think the guy in our boat is more than we first imagined. I think maybe God is in our boat. This specific design was for the peace and the faith of the disciples. Let me give you another one. Let's think about Paul and Silas. Remember Paul and Silas? Preachers of the gospel. They're in jail. They're locked up. We're not the only ones locked up. There's a whole lot of people locked up there. And as they're locked up in prison, not too hard to figure this out, I'd be doing the same thing. Oh, Lord, please get me out of this stinking prison. I don't want to be here. I'm claustrophobic, and I'm about to lose my mind. I need to be let out. All of a sudden, this whole prison and the whole place around there, an earthquake comes. They didn't see that one on the chart, did they? All of a sudden, everything starts shaking. Everything starts moving. And it shakes so violently that the doors were opened. And the text says, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Not Paul and Silas. Everyone's was unfastened. All the prisoners benefited, but the specific design was for Paul and Silas alone. It's pretty common to take the warp and woof of Scripture and to see these things. Well, would it be that large of a jump to make the next statement? What about the greatest miracle that ever happened? What about the greatest miracle? You say, what's the greatest miracle? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus Christ was born, you're not going to believe this, of a virgin That don't work. How would you be pregnant if she's a virgin? This is a miracle, right? How does this work? Here's a guy born of a virgin who lived a life of sinless perfection. He died a substitutionary death in the place of somebody. He rose on the third day. He rose from the dead. By the way, side note, but I met a guy yesterday who died twice and came back to life twice. Anyways, I wasn't impressed, but nevertheless, I didn't believe his story. But Jesus was seen by over 500 people at one time. It's kind of hard to make this stuff up when you got 500 eyewitnesses. And then, after 40 days, he ascends back to heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling over all of creation right now. Christ is reigning. This is the greatest miracle ever. Death, sin, hell, and the devil are defeated. It doesn't, it, they're not possibly defeated. They're not maybe defeated. They are defeated. They've been put to open shame. Life, forgiveness, heaven, and union with God in heaven have been won. We will go home. We will spend eternity with Christ. How do you know that? Because He accomplished it. 
He has finished it. We're going to make it all the way home based on Him. Now, we got this problem now. We got these universal texts and we got these specific texts. Okay? You know these. He says universally, He died for the sins of the whole world, who gave Him His life a ransom for all. He's not willing that any should perish. For God so loved the world. And on and on. If you need a longer list, find your local Arminian. He can give you a list. Then we have these specific texts that we got to deal with. Christ laid down his life for the sheep. Okay. We have Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay. We, we could go on with these. Divine knowledge is only given to those with whom the Son is pleased to give it. We have, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. It's the only way they can come. And so we got these universal texts and these specific texts, and you're saying, how in the world are we to put these together? Well, now that I've laid you a foundation the issue should not be too difficult to resolve. The cross of Christ has a general benefit to the whole world. The whole world benefits because Christ came. In the whole globe, we'll talk about this more, but everybody benefits from the cross. And yet at the same time, there's a specific group that is redeemed. Remember, God's Son, the Lord Jesus, has been given all authority over all flesh so that all whom has been given to Him, He may give them eternal life. Number four and last, God's purpose of His gospel. Think about this. Think about the gospel. Now we're talking about the gospel, the cross, the entirety of the gospel. What makes the gospel the gospel? The center, Christ. Okay, we're talking about the good news of people being saved from sin, being given eternal life. Think about the gospel came to America, came across the sea. We left England. We come here. We're going to build churches. We're going to preach the gospel. And the work begins over on the East Coast and it begins to spread across America. Everybody benefits. You say, well, how does everybody benefit? Hospitals are built. Methodist Hospital, All Saints Hospital, Lutheran Hospital. Who do you think's building hospitals? Christians that care about the physical condition of souls. They build hospitals in order that people can be cared for. You know what else they did? They built schools in order that we can invest in kids' lives and we can bring them to school and we can teach them how to read and how to write and how to do arithmetic, all those types of things in order that they can be productive in society. That's because of the gospel. Even if they forgot that, that's a benefit that come. Laws were made. You know, it's weird, some of the laws. I know the laws are all convoluted, and don't, don't take this too far. But you know what? Murder is wrong. I wonder why. Maybe it was written in a book somewhere by Moses. And I think it's wrong to take somebody else's car when they don't give you the keys and they're not home. It's called stealing. Why is that wrong? I think it was written in a book somewhere by Moses. And so these gospel truths affected the legal system of America. Now, I know it's all distorted and all that, but it still had an effect. 
churches influenced communities. Do you know there were people that were uncomfortable drinking alcohol because there was a church built in town? Do you know there was people uncomfortable having affairs because there was a preacher walking down the street? Do you know that people were affected just because a church went up and there was songs being sung and a Bible being read that it had a moral effect upon society? It was good for the whole world. A whole nation experiences a moral effect as a result of gospel advancement. What was the specific design of the gospel, though? To save the elect of God. To redeem those that God gave to the Son. The whole nation was made better, but the specific design was for a specific people. Think about the Reformation. These get shorter, don't worry. The Reformation. Why did God raise up Luther and Calvin Zwingli, so many others, Bayes, all these guys. Why did he raise up all these guys for reparation? Surely he did so that Christ would receive the reward for his suffering. I get that. that. That those given to Christ would be redeemed. But what was accomplished in the Reformation? Well, we don't have time, obviously, to cover all of that. But I can tell you that salvation happened, praise the Lord, for some. Progress what, in arts and sciences, the liberation of the human mind, the establishing of biblical authority, theology, doctrine, all these things came out of the Reformation. The strengthening of society as a whole because of the Reformation. It had an effect on the whole world. We're still affected by the Reformation. The whole world is. But specifically, that Reformation is more dear to some people in this room than over there sleeping in their beds this morning in their brick houses, Right? But it still has that effect. Now, we're getting to the part Cody likes. I wrote this whole sermon for Cody. What shall we do in light of this truth? What should we do with the gospel? What are we going to do with the gospel in the light of general blessing on the whole and specific application to the elect? What are we to do? <laughs> Preach the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. Preach it loud. Preach it proud. Preach it everywhere. Just take the gospel to the whole world. Go to a drug alcohol rehab in Tuxla. Go to the stockyards. Go to this thing. Go to that thing. Go to this man. Go to your neighbor. Go to your family. Just take the gospel and just give it out like it's free. Plead with men. Repent, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, look unto Christ and be saved right now, today. Look unto Christ now before it's too late. Plead with men. Plow forward in gospel living. Stand on the truth. Be consistent in godliness. Set the standard for morality. Shine the light and be salt in the earth. Everywhere you go, that your life, by your speech and your actions, has an effect upon the world in which you live. Make it broad. Make it large. Spread it everywhere. Do it like you do butter on your bread in the morning. Put it all over the whole thing. Prod others on to love and good works. Do that. What shall, we what shall we expect from a life of working or walking the narrow road of gospel living? That the whole world will benefit as God uses His gospel for His specific purposes, our definite purposes. 
for the people whom God has given him. The chosen will be saved. Here's what arrogant, prideful people say. Well, if all that's true, preacher, why does the Lord not just send me to those he elected? People say stuff like that. Why send me to the nations? Just send me to the one you've elected. That'd make more sense. Let me give you Spurgeon's answer because I can't answer any better. Spurgeon says to the guy that asked that question, What business have you to question your master's will? Is not this the very way in which I have chosen that my elect shall be brought by the preaching of the gospel to all nations? We have no right to question him. God has a general effect upon the whole world to save his elect. That's the way he does it? Then that's the wisest way for it to be done. Remember, God's Son, the Lord Jesus, has been given authority over all flesh so that all whom he has given to him, he may give to them eternal life. Now, in conclusion, I, not Spurgeon, but I, do not believe that all the missionary societies in the world will bring conversion to the world. I do not think that the world is going to be increasingly a Christian place to reside. I do not think that the church will be the main interest of the world anytime soon. However, I do know that the king of the universe has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has commanded us to take the gospel into all the world. He will use his gospel to save people from every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. Thus, it behooves the church to manifest the gospel everywhere to the benefit of the world and to the application of the elect. Be free with the gospel. Fittingly, we should end with Spurgeon's words. Quote, this is what he said. If I were absolutely certain that there was not one elect man upon earth, I would obey and preach the gospel for all that. Because if there were not a single soul saved by it, we are unto God a sweet-smelling savor. So then, I say to you individually, talk about Christ everywhere. Preach Jesus Christ to every creature. Say to every man and woman you meet, there is life in a look to the crucified one. Tell men, whosoever cometh unto me, he will in no wise cast out. And let this be always your comfort that all that the Father giveth to him shall come to him, that Jesus shall see his seed, that all that the Father hath given him, he will lose none, but will present them all at his right hand at last. Remember, God's Son, the Lord Jesus, has been given authority over all flesh, so that all whom he has given to him, he may give to them eternal life. Trust and pray that you can see God's general work in the whole world and marvel that the God of the universe would specifically do something with you. Now, I went to jail this week and I thought, marvel of all marvels. There's a hundred phones you can get and talk to an inmate.
in this room. There ain't nobody in there. Every phone is empty. There's no visitors. I'm the only visitor. That doesn't make me special. I'm just describing the room. I look around. There ain't a soul. Here comes Brandy. She's so happy. We sit down. We do our discussion. We do the Bible. I look at her and said, you want to know something really cool? And she says, what's that? I said, look around the room. She looks around. I said, ain't nobody here. Yeah. I said, you know the God of heaven, by his providence, moved me to come here, to sit here, to talk to you because he loves you? And she just started crying. Wow, God loves me. It's general love of God specifically applied through a phone looking through a glass. God moved all of these things to make that happen. Oh, should we embrace this truth and know that as you go out in this world and live out the gospel, that as you live it out, you're accomplishing good generally everywhere. And then there might be those moments that God would give you something specific and you'd see the fruit of it. And you could just rejoice in what God's doing. Be faithful with the gospel. Let us pray as Brother Jeff Crago comes to lead us in a closing song. Father, thank you for your work in the world. Thank you for a gospel that's global. Thank you that Isaiah 45 says, Look unto me, all the ends of the earth. And Lord, we thank you that it's very, very specific that we must look unto Christ. Right now, in this very room this morning, there are some who need to look at Christ right now. Right now. In your pride, your arrogance, your sin, you need to look at Christ right now and be saved. You need to look to Him and ask Him for mercy. Would you do that just now? Would you cry out to Christ and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Oh, Lord Jesus, save my soul from hell. Lord Jesus, I need forgiveness of sins. Would you be so kind and gracious to forgive me right now in this place at this time? I need help. Pray that right now. And pray until God gives you mercy. Lord, for the rest of the church, those who confess Christianity, they've been baptized, they, they proclaim that they're Christians, oh, that they wouldn't let the gospel grow common and callous, but they would seek ways to make the gospel known. Tracks, words, actions, service. They'd be stirred up this morning and say, I want to make a difference in the world with the gospel. And you would empower them to live these things out. We pray this by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen.